Well, uh, yeah, man, happy Sunday. If we haven't had the chance to meet, uh, as Pastor Lorenzo just said a moment ago, my name is Ryan Smith. I serve as the teaching pastor here, and I am uh, excited to gather once again with each and every single one of you as we study the scriptures together uh, each week. Man, we are um, two years now into our, our pandemic, in this pandemic moment. Uh, whoever you are and, and whatever you've been through, this has been a collectively shared experience. And man, so much has changed both on an individual level and as a, a societal level. And, and one of those normal things has become the daily donning of our masks. This has become as normal as grabbing your wallet, your keys, your phone as you walk out the door. Now, there are many, uh, many th- uh, that, that hate uh, the, the, the whatever of this being put on. But what's been surprising as we've made our way through the past two years is finding how many people actually love this piece of protection. And not just for the sake of, you know, protection from some virus, but protection from being seen. There are uh, those who refer to uh, their mask as their invisibility cloak. Uh, you can see unpopular opinion, eight reasons why I actually love wearing a mask um, all throughout. There's been, uh, as this has kind of developed, so many interviewers writing, you know, you know uh, looking and asking these people, like, why do you love wearing these masks, getting into it? And so for some, it's this invisibility cloak, the idea of this anonymity that a mask brings. But such a large amount of the, you know, face covering fans out there have been found within those who work in, of all places, customer service. They work in the hospitality industry. Why? Because the normal uh, pathway of always smiling whenever you look at people, having to put on a kind of fake face maybe, is now you can grit your teeth, you can make faces, you don't have to smile as you deal with, you know, whoever who's bummed out about his macchiato. One of the other big changes that have been brought about over these past two years is now the prevalence that every single one of you spend most of your day with, many of you spend most of your day on, is these Zoom calls. Whereas we all get to participate in our own little version of the Brady Bunch as we stare at one another's faces all day long. Now, as much as you and I may hate the app that is Zoom, the reality is is that this was implemented into our work system and our relationships and how this all plays out for the same reason that so many people love wearing masks. You see, our faces are the essence of who we are. Your face is is central. It is the essence of who you are. There is a reason why all of your profile pictures on Instagram or whatever is not your knee or your elbow or your ear. It's your face. Your face is your identity. It is who you are. And even more than that, our faces disclose what we feel. Our emotions are seen in our face before we ever have to say a word with these expressions and micro-expressions that communicate all of these emotions before we even have to. I mean, you all know this. You grew up with parents that looking at you without saying a word, you knew that you were in trouble. There are some of you that the way that your roommate, you can look at your roommate and know they had an awful day at work before they even say a word. Your friend, your spouse, coworkers, we are our little faces. We are far more, we are communicating beings and far more than just the words that come out of our mouth. Our faces express all of this. Now, why I bring all this up is as we continue in our teaching series we've been beginning the year in, we've been looking at this ancient prayer and considering this question of what is the blessed life? Today, I'm inviting us to consider the importance not just of our own faces, but the importance of the face of God. So if you're able, would you join me in standing as we read from Numbers chapter 6, beginning in verse 22. 
as I regularly say, we stand when we read from the scriptures, uh, not because this is anything magical, but simply a way of identifying with our bodies, like kneeling in prayer or raising our hands in worship, that we're reading something uh, different than the newspaper or, you know, praise God, your Twitter feed. And so with that being said, Numbers chapter 6, beginning in verse 22, says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, that is, the, the priests, saying, Thus shall you bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Let's pray. And so Father, we uh, thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to gather uh, God, uh, uh, for those of us that are a part of Collective and, and have been here since day one, to those of us that this is our first day, maybe in Collective or maybe in a church ever, wherever we come from, God, we're just excited for the opportunity to sit and uh, study the scriptures together. We ask that you would speak, uh, that we would be able to behold uh, a little bit more of who you are and that you would shape us um, one degree um, just closer to who you've made us to be. Let me pray. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and take a seat? Well, the priestly blessing that we just wrote, you'll see behind me, has these kind of five elements or five pillars of blessing that we've been talking about. And so uh, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Isaac kicked us off with that, that opening line, the Lord bless you. Last week, as we gathered together, we looked at what does it mean for the Lord to keep you. And today, we make our way to the next. What does it mean for the Lord to make his face to shine upon you. Now, worth noting really quickly is you'll see number four at the beginning of verse 26 is this another line right here, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. When was the last time anyone used countenance this past week? I know you saw it all over. We, just, we all, you know, we use this word too much. We don't know. No one uses this word. The word, if you look it up in a dictionary, it, it means face. I, why? I don't know. I don't know why they use countenance. The whole point of a, an English translation is you're supposed to be able to read Hebrew in a language that you understand, and for some reason they use a word that no one uses. So the whole point to just acknowledge here is verse 26, the Lord lift up his face upon you, is what it says. In the Hebrew, it's the same word of make his face shine upon you is verse 26, the Lord lift up his face upon you. Why I'm pointing this out is just to note that two out of the five elements of the blessed life is the experience of God's face. So whatever we're talking about, when we talk about God's face, this, this blessing would remind us two out of five times, it's whatever it means to experience God's face. Now, a couple things worth noting here is first, this is, here's your big word for the day. You don't have to write it down. You don't even have to memorize it, but we have to say it, is this is what's called anthropomorphic language. Does anyone want to try that? No, you don't. It's okay. Anthropomorphic language. The idea here is that though God is spirit, that is, he is not a tangible, physical person like you and me, the biblical authors will regularly attribute qualities of human body, in this case, a human face, to God as a way to help us fathom, you know, God, something we cannot get our minds around. And so why a face? Why is this the primary? Why not, you know, the Lord, you know, his nose shine upon you, his ear why his face shine upon you? What's in a face? Well, as we talked about it a minute ago, there's kind of three main things behind what we're talking about when we talk about our faces. So before we get to God, let's just talk about what your face is to you and, and my face is to me. First and foremost, like we said, your face is about your identity. It's about who you are. You have your face. No one else has your face. That's why deep fakes are so unsettling. 
right? Does anybody know what these are? Like advanced AI that you can literally put the face of someone. Like there's like all these Tom, there's a whole TikTok of, of a guy who's impersonator of Tom Cruise. And with this AI, it's Tom Cruise's face and it's the creepiest thing in the world. But why is this so unsettling to us? Is because your face is about your identity. It's about who you are. The second thing that your face is about is your emotion. Through all those micro expressions and the way that you contort or shape your face, it's about your emotions. It's about how you feel. And in an age before non-Zoom, this ancient world, a time when FaceTime was literally you being in the presence of someone. FaceTime was not simply looking at a phone, but it was being face-to-face in the presence of someone. So your face is about your identity. It's about who we are. It's about our emotions, what we're feeling, and our presence. It's about where we are. So bringing all this together, the blessed life, what, the, what this prayer is praying over God's people, is that we might experience who God is to us, how he feels about us, and that he is with us. This all comes together in uh, about 500 years ago, a bunch of theologians, they kind of got together and they, you know, what is the goal of life? And they said the goal of life uh, is in Latin, to live coram Deo, that is to live before the face of God. This is the goal of life is to experience God's identity, who he is, his emotions about us, and his presence with us. That is the good life. All of this flows off of the opening pages of the Bible, where we go back and we see that the life that humanity was made for, uh, portrayed in Adam and Eve, living what? Face-to-face with God, walking with him in the cool of the day in the garden. This is the blessed, good life. So bringing all this together then, The priestly blessing, what we've just read over and praying two out of five times for an experience of God's face is praying for that kind of Eden opening pages of the Bible experience of God's identity, his emotion and his presence about us and to us and with us. This is what the blessed life is all about. And so in two weeks when we talk about the Lord lifting his face toward you, this is all about, spoiler alert, God's attention, him lifting, directing his face, making eye contact with you. But for today, what does it mean for God's face to shine upon us, right? What is that, what is, what shining faces, what does this mean? And, and why do we need God's face to shine? And how do we get it? And where do we go once we have it? That's kind of what we're looking at today. So let's just first ask this question of what is God's shining face? Now, the Bible uses the shining face language two primary ways. The one is kind of literally what it sounds like. The shining face is radiating brightness, glowing glory off of someone's face, but the second and, and more common use of the word is about smiling. It's about delight. One of my favorite examples of this is in 1 Samuel, Jonathan talks about how he you know, takes like a little spoonful of honey, and then he remarks how it made his face shine. Right? He wasn't glowing. What was he doing? He's smiling. His eyes are bright. He's smiling. He's delighting. He's taking pleasure in the honey. This is what I do with Oatly's strawberry ice cream. It's like it's, I, I, you can't not smile and eat that stuff. Like it just immediately brings it to mind. So to bring all this stuff together is this is why some translations have the Lord make his face to shine upon you. They just translate it as the Lord smile on you. It's about the experience of the glow of God's kindness and his friendship and his love. And so if God lifting his face toward you is about his sovereign attention, God lighting his face upon you is about his holy affection. That experience of friendship and delight and pl- like that God says over me, like he said seven times in the opening uh, poem of the scriptures, you are good. You are very good. You could weave all this together. You could say, you can see behind me, for God to shine his face upon us is for his smiling identity 
emotions and his presence to illuminate our identity, our emotions and our presence. This goes back, I keep saying this goes back, everything goes back to the opening pages of the Bible. But this, in the opening uh, poem of what it means to be human, is that you and I, what Lo just talked about, is that we are the image of God. And what this means is that every single human is an image bearer, is we not just get to behold the, the face of God, but that as we do, we actually reflect God's face out unto others. At least that's the ideal. David Winkle, in his book, Shining Like the Sun, he does a, a, what's called a little biblical theology of face-to-face experiences with God. You can read it in one sitting. It's awesome. And he just starts with Genesis and moves all the way through Revelation, looking for moments when people come face-to-face to God and kind of, okay, what are the consistent themes that happen here? And the consistent theme all throughout is whenever people come face-to-face, they experience the shining face of God, it changes them over and over again. Their face starts shining too. This happens literally with Moses when he goes up onto Mount Sinai or he goes into the tent of meeting where he had this little veil that he would have to wear because when he was in the presence of God, as he came out, he literally was glowing is what it says. And so he'd wear a veil because it was too much for people to see. And then when he went back into the tent of presence, he would take the veil off and he would have time in the presence of God. For him, it was literally glowing. But again, more often we find that in others' stories throughout the Old Testament, when people experience God's shining face, it changes them. Gideon, hiding in a hole, becomes emboldened. Um, uh, Samuel, sleeping in the temple, becomes called. Samson's mother is healed. Face-to-face interactions with God results in a smile on your face as you are changed. And so the question is, why do we need God's face to shine? We don't have to look any further than our own mirrors. As God asked Cain, why has your face fallen? For so many of us, our smiles are utterly absent from our lives and at best quite impermanent. We have faces that are more often than not downcast and fallen as God asked Cain. In the story of Cain in Genesis chapter 4, that he, like his parents, Adam and Eve, like each of us, whether you want to personify it in a talking snake, a crouching beast, or in some dark deceiver, we have all heard this whisper that we can't trust God. We can't trust his smiling face. And even more than that, we hear the lie of why would you live from God's smile when you could live for your own? This brings us into the biblical language about sin being far more than just about you or me doing bad things. It's about us being self-deceived to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. To use the face language, we could say that sin is our misled chase after a smile on our face that results in faces being fallen. Both that's us getting to the end of chasing after something that would put a smile on our face and finding that it doesn't, but also the way that what we do is we make and redefine good and evil, puts a frown, it downcasts, it makes other people's faces fall, and as it hurts, abuses, as our selfishness, this is a more robust understanding of sin than simply you doing bad things. It's about that inward self-deception of us chasing after a smile, but it not being something that we'll be able to give it. All this results in, again, this incredibly robust description of the human condition that Genesis 3 has Adam and Eve that on a result, they do what we all do. We hide from God's face and his presence. Cain in Genesis chapter 4, he goes away from God's presence. All of us, on the other side of that, that broken uh, decision-making that we have, we look for where do we go from here. And believing that now we cannot trust God, it leads us to hide from him. It leads us to run from him. And throughout the Psalms and the prophets, we find that God 
honors that decision. It says that he hides his face from us he, or even turns his face against us. Now, this right here, this is a nugget that is worth a cup of coffee and a whole other sermon in a week of talking about. But in the biblical language, you have this interesting way of talking about God's judgment, what he does with humans in our sin, is that it is talked about as God turning his face from us, hiding his face from us, and turning his face against us. Well, which one is it? Is he hiding his face from us, or is he turning his face against us? The biblical language would seem to say that the greatest judgment that God can give of him turning his face against you is for him to to take his, his presence away, to take his smiling presence away from us. So this is the experience of what we have. You read about some of this in Psalm chapter 80 this week. But on the other side of all of this, we find that the absence of God's smile is a loss too great to bear for many of us. As the North African theologian uh, Augustine said in the 300s, he said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. The restlessness that all of us experience as humans that we have a hard time sometimes maybe naming. Why can I never be satisfied? Augustine said, it's because satisfaction, you were made for the smile of God. And until you have it, you will be chasing for it in everything that you can find. We have, Augustine says, restless heart syndrome. That being made to live from the smile of God, without it we spend our lives restlessly searching for a replacement. And so we may do this in our religious deeds, you know, putting on fig leaves like Adam and Eve, trying to, to put on some mask that we believe that God can somehow not see right through it. But more often than not, believing that we can't trust God, we look for the smile, this kind of radiating, transforming smile in two other places. For some of us, it's looking for that smile in the smile of others. We go chasing and looking for the sort of smile that will give us identity and be the center point for who we are and allow us to move into life and find happiness and peace, enjoy everything going back to the Eden story. We look for it in others. This is told in, in the book of Genesis in the story of Jacob. Jacob was this man who was, man, just up to the point of needy and longing for the smile of his father, for the blessing of his father. And as you follow Jacob's story, he, time and time again, he cheats, he lies, he literally disguises himself to be someone that he's not, trying to get the smile of his father. You see, some of us like Jacob, we are looking for, we are restless for the smile of God, and so we start looking for it in others. And so we manipulate situations, maybe we lie, we deceive ourselves like the deep fake, we put on the face of someone that we're not, trying to get someone to look in our attention to find the smile that we so desperately are looking for. And, and honestly, the, the, the sad thing is, is that when we get quiet long enough and we sit and we look at all of our, our advanced little ways of trying to become something that we're not for the sake of getting someone else's smile, we look at all of the manipulations and the way that we do this and it's just, it's silly. We look as silly as a, a lawyer with a cat filter on his face. This is the best thing to come out of the pandemic. If you have not seen this video, lawyer, just lawyer, or just search lawyer, I'm not a cat. And it's, it's the, he, he shows up, I think his granddaughter was using it, and she had the cat filter on. And so he comes in time to be with the judge, and I'm not a cat. He doesn't know, he doesn't know how to turn it off, and he starts like freaking out. Now, this is silly, but I, I think the whole point is that any of us who have stopped long enough, that have been chasing after the smile of others, that when we stop and we take a break and we start to look at how we relate to other people and 
the little like, like lies that we tell that are just stupid lies, like saying that we've watched movie or read books that we haven't read just to get someone to like, like us. That's, that's so, like, we just see how silly this is. And so some of us, we're just looking for that the smile and the presence, that acceptance, that friendship, that kindness. And so we'll become someone that we're not trying to find it. More often in our society, though, we've given up trying to find the smile of others. And we've been told that if we want to find that smile that will transform us, we need to look no further than the mirror. That inside of you, if you look within you, there is, there is a captivating smile that you will find within yourself. And so bringing out who you are with all of its whatever is the way to find the smile that you are longing for, the delight that your heart longs for. And, and the whole thing, if Zoom and selfies teach us anything, is that staring at ourselves is not the way to find joy. That whole experience that we have all talked about, Zoom fatigue, psychologists have figured out why. It's not from looking at other people's faces. It's from looking at your own all day. You are not, you literally fatigue. You get exhausted because you're not meant to spend your whole day looking at yourself. Similarly, psychologists have found, specifically this was in young women, but they found it within uh, people across the board. Ten minutes of you taking selfies, editing selfies, and posting selfies is immediately linked with a skyrocketing rate of anxiety and decreased confidence. So this, and this, we're just dealing with like screen time stuff. How much more so if when we create the primary way that we relate to ourselves is by trying to bring out some, we stare at ourselves looking for the smile that we just can't seem to find. You see, the loss of God's smile, I, it, we, we, all of us here, regardless of whatever faith system you come from, would agree that we are a restless species, an insatiable species looking for meaning and purpose, and we have this longing deep within that nothing can satisfy. And, and at the end of the day, you need to have some, you have to have some understanding and answer for why. It has to be more than just procreation of the species. And so the answer, the question is why, and the Augustine, the Christian faith would say, what you are looking for, what you are longing for, why you are restless is you're looking for the smile of God. And without it, we live east of Eden. We live as wandering exiles, wandering through the wilderness, on our own, looking for a smile that we just can't seem to find. And so in order to recover that radiating delight-filled identity and emotion and presence, this is what it will require it will require God to turn his face back toward us. As you read in Psalm 80, the psalm repeats three times like a little repeating chorus. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Notice that God's face shining and smiling is linked with salvation and restoration. This is what we're longing for. Being saved from the restlessness and restored back to the relationship that we have and right in the middle is God's face shining upon us once again. Now, where do we find God's smile? How do we get this? We need it. We were made for it. Where do we find it? This brings us back to the priestly blessing. As you've heard about over the past few weeks, the context of this prayer was regular that the priest would, would pronounce and say over God's people. But one of the common regular times this would happen was on the Day of Atonement. And what would happen on the Day of Atonement is the priest, Aaron and his sons, would stand before Israel. And there standing before Israel, they would have with them two goats. Right? Right there. And now these two goats, there were two goats for two different things. The first goat was the sin offering. And so these, these, uh, the priests would take and sacrifice this goat. And the whole point being around this is the identification of what does humans redefining good and bad on our terms looking for our own smile lead to. 
It leads to fallen faces. It leads to death. And so here in this goat, this sacrifice offering, we're returning to God's definition of good and bad. We're agreeing with him that those who take from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, or we choose for ourselves, it leads to death. And this thing is now dying the death that, that we've brought on ourselves. No more hiding. No more running. We're standing in God's presence and we're identifying something needs to be done. And, and for Israel, this was the way that they, they went about this. But there was a second goat. You probably have heard about the first goat before, but many of us haven't heard about the second goat. The second goat is, has been referred to by some as the scapegoat. This goat, is they would bring it up and then the priest, the high priest, would lay his hands on the goat. And then he would pronounce and say over the goat all of the sins of Israel, right? So you're sitting there and you're listening and you're hearing like all the things. There's like, oh, that's, I know that's one, you know, that was, you know, Stephen did that. And then like, oh, I know that. Oh, that one's me, right? He's naming all of the sins as he lays his hands on the goat. Kind of like placing, putting them on the goat. And then after that, what would they do with the goat? They don't kill it. It walks off into the wilderness. It just leaves. And the, the whole point of this is it's, leaving, it's carrying away the sin from the face of God and from the people of Israel. It's no longer in our presence. The goat has left the building, and with it, our sin. And as a result of these two things happening, sin's death being dealt with, and now its, its presence being gone and taken away, the priest would then stand before Israel, raise his hands, and he would declare the priestly blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. And you can imagine the smile on everyone's face as they heard the Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord smile on you. See, the priest in this moment stands as this mediator for God, pronouncing God's blessing over God's people. In many ways, we've been talking a lot about Zoom and Instagram and Snapchat. You could, you could see the priest as kind of being like this filtered face of God. The whole idea being that though God's face can smile on his people, that that throughout the Bible we find that people can't look directly back into God's face. It's just too much for our little human brains to fathom. And so God always deals with these mediated relationships of priests and prophets and kings. But every now and then there's those moments, right, when he does break forward and people are falling on their faces like Isaiah and Moses. They're like, I don't know what to, right? And God, had, like the first thing he says when people experience him is like, hey, don't, don't worry, don't, don't freak out. It's going to be okay. So the whole thing is there's this mediated relationship between the priests. And so I, I bring all this to say that though the Eden experience of God's face shining on his people is recaptured in this whole sacrificial system, it's only captured in part. As glorious and as gracious as it is, only in part. Because though God's face smiles on his people, that face-to-face -face Eden experience is still missing. And so this was Israel's story for generations. Year after year, the Day of Atonement, the scapegoat, you know, leaves the building, the sacrificial offering, and the people here, the Lord smiles on you. And it's Eden, but not the full recapturing of it quite yet. All this continues for generations until the birth of Jesus. Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who the Apostle Paul referred to as the image of the invisible God. As one author, Brennan Manning, put it, Jesus is the face of God. In the middle of his ministry, Jesus takes his disciples up on top of a mountain, and there it says he's transformed or transfigured, and Jesus' face starts shining like the sun is what it says. And you have this moment here where the whole question is, is this Moses 2.0, or is this the shining face of God himself? And I love that, is it Mark or Luke's, Luke's account, has that as Jesus is there and his face starts shining, Moses appears standing next to him along with one of the prophets. 
And the whole point is that he's not a Moses 2.0. He is the face that, that even Moses was reflecting back then. Jesus is the radiance of the beauty of God, as the author of Hebrews says it. And so if you and I are looking for God's face, and we're looking for his face to smile again, for who God is to us, how he feels about you and me, and that he is with us, Jesus is God's answer. Jesus is his face. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says it this way, For God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is why as you read through the gospel accounts during his life, as Jesus came face to face with people, it was always in every single time, it was like they were like those old stories from the Old Testament that when people came con- into contact with God's presence, they were changed and transformed. They were healed and forgiven. They were loved. They were smiled on. That the rate, it's, like the, it's like just like the old stories of, of Gideon, of someone coming into the contact of the presence of God. Jesus is like, it's like the face of God walking around in and among us. And as Jesus approached his death on the cross, he understood and, and defined and described himself as being like that priest mediating the sacrifice, standing in the gap between God and humanity to turn our faces back toward God and to bring God, to show God's face turning toward us. But more than just being the priest mediating that, Jesus also identified and saw himself as being that sacrificial offering and being that scapegoat both dying in our place for what our selfishness has brought about, but also carrying it away from us so that it no longer is on us. And at a a paradox at the center of the cross that theologians have tried to figure out for 2,000 years is simultaneously as Jesus was dying on the cross, the Father is never more delighted in smiling on the Son as he is, is the righteous one entering into suffering for the sake of others. And simultaneously, the Father turns his face away as Jesus is bearing the full weight of sin. And all of this is being motivated. Why would Jesus, why would God do such a thing as motivated by this word grace? What we're going to look at next week uh, when, when Yoda, Gary Brashears, is here with us. In, that, in that, that connection point. How does God's face shine upon us? It says, the Lord be gracious to you. These two are connected and we'll show the detail of that next week. But on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection, Luke's gospel tells us before his ascension, before Jesus ascends to be the right hand of the Father, what does Jesus do? He raises his hands and he ble- it says he blesses them. He's, li- he's doing exactly what the priests did after the Day of Atonement. There's many uh, scholars and writers who, who would understand this as Jesus is saying the priestly blessing over his disciples. He stands, resurrected Jesus, and says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. This is what Jesus has done. And so now it is underneath that blessing, it is underneath the smile of God that you and I are invited to live our lives. All of this is we await history's fulfillment in Jesus' return. I love where the story ends in Revelation chapter 22 when it talks about the Eden experience that we all long for and were made for being fully realized. Of heaven and earth becoming one and as Revelation 22 says, they will see his face. Throughout all of history, we see through a dimly lit mirror. And Revelation 22 says, and his return and the union of heaven and earth, they will see his face. So where do we go in the meantime? It doesn't seem as though we are left just waiting because Jesus sent his spirit, his presence, the indwelling, smiling presence of God within his people, within you and me. And so practically, a couple of things that this means as we close. 
The first is 2 Corinthians 3.17. Paul says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Those who have the smile of God have a freedom to live their lives without trying to earn his smile. And trying to feel like the smile of God is something that they have to constantly chase over. Those in the spirit, through the resurrection work of Jesus, are able to rest assured that when God looks at you, when Jesus sees you, the emotion on his face is not one of disappointment or regret, but a beaming smile. And so this freedom frees us not only from trying to get God's uh, smile through religion, but it also frees us from the restless search of trying to find the smile of others or the smile in the mirror. Tim Keller is a pastor in New York. He puts it this way. He says, if I have the smile of God, all other frowns are inconsequential. And that means your frown as well. As you look at yourself, and, and, and this, this means everything from your behavior, your belonging to your own body, whatever it is that causes a frown, your face to be fallen, the truth of the resurrected Jesus is that if that smile becomes the thing at the center of my identity, my emotions, and my presence, is that even when I'm feeling my face down, that, that is not indicative of the truth. So not only do we find freedom, we also find, as Paul continues in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul says that the life of spirit freedom, the life of blessing, is experienced in beholding and being transformed by the Spirit. Beholding the glory, the face of God. You notice the unveiled face. He's making a reference to Moses, remember. Who we, now Moses isn't the only one who gets to go into the presence of God and take off the veil and get to be in his presence. That's now this, this for everyone reality of all of us being able to experience God and to behold and reflect and to contemplate who he is in Christ. To sit before him and behold him. Brennan Manning once retold the story of an old man who was dying of cancer. The man's daughter had asked the local pastor to come and, and pray with her father. When the pastor arrived, he found the man's lying in bed with a head propped up on two pillows and an empty chair right there beside the bed. The pastor assumed that the old fellow had been informed of his visit. I guess you were expecting me, he said. No, who are you? Well, I'm, I'm the new pastor at your church, the pastor replied. When I saw the empty chair, I figured you knew I was going to show up. Oh yeah, the chair, said the bedridden man. Would you mind closing the door? Puzzled, the pastor shut the door. He said, I've never told anyone this, not even my daughter, but all my life I have never known how to pray. At the Sunday service, I used to hear the pastor talk about prayer, but it always went right over my head. I abandoned any attempt at prayer, the old man continued, until one day, about four years ago, my best friend said to me, Joe, prayer is just a simple matter of having a conversation with Jesus. Here's what I suggest. Sit down in a chair and place an empty chair in front of you. And in faith, see Jesus sitting there with you on the chair. And this isn't spooky because Jesus promised by his spirit, I will be with you always. And then through faith, seeing him, just speak to him and listen in the same way you're doing, me, doing with me right now. So pastor, I tried it and you know, I've, I've tried it so much, I do it a couple hours of every single day. I'm careful though, if my daughter saw me talking to an empty chair, she'd either have a nervous breakdown or she'd send me off to the funny farm. The pastor was deeply moved by the story, and so he encouraged the old guy to continue on the journey. Then he prayed with him, anointed him with oil, and returned back to the church building. 
Two nights later, the daughter called to tell the pastor that her daddy had died that afternoon. Did he seem to die in peace, he asked. Yes, when I left the house around 2 o'clock, he called me over to his bedside, told me one of his corny jokes, and kissed me on the cheek. When I got back from the store an hour later, I found him dead. But there was something strange, Pastor. In fact, beyond strange, kind of weird. Apparently, just before Daddy died, he leaned over and rested his head on a chair beside the bed. The blessed life is beholding who God is and how he feels about us and that he is with us. In Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. And we behold, as Paul says, the glory of God. We do this every single week as we gather and we study the scriptures together. We do this in prayer. And so part of what the invitation has been with us calling um, our community back to the practice of silence and solitude at the beginning of this year is creating a rhythm of beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, of sitting with, of resting on and beholding the smiling face of God and allowing that to be a center point for our lives. For Paul, the blessed life is, 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 is motivated and driven and grows out of beholding how God is and who he is and how he sees you. And the result of all of this is, as we just read in this story, is the ability of knowing that God is with us and how he feels about us is that we are able to have peace, not just in death, but even for us in the midst of life's mess. But we're not invited just to beholding because as Paul just said a moment ago, over a lifetime of beholding, Paul said what? That one degree at a time, we are all being transformed into the same image. We're being transformed into looking like Jesus. The way that you could put this and trying to bring all this together as we begin to wrap up is to behold God's smiling face in Jesus. Is to behold who God is to you and me. It's to behold how he feels about you and me, and it's to know that he is with us. And as we behold Jesus' face, it transforms our face. It transforms my identity. It transforms your emotions, and it changes our presence with those that we are with. And all of this results then in that transformation process, one degree at a time, us and our identity, our emotions, our presence, our face, reflecting God's to others. You see, this all is a recapturing of the image of God, what we were made for. And all of this is done by the work of Jesus through his spirit in changing us piece by piece. And so what the priestly blessing called by saying, so they shall put my name upon the people of Israel, we could say, instead of carrying the name of God to the nations, we have his face being crafted on us and within us so that we might reflect him, to reflect his face to the world. Growing up, my brothers and I, as we grabbed our lunches and we always ran out late making our way to the bus, my mom would regularly like call out the door, like, be the moon, like, you know, cue teenage eye roll, right? Okay, thanks, mom. What does that even mean? She would regularly sit us down and talk about what it means to be the moon. And she would talk about how the moon illuminates a dark world as it reflects the sun to the world. And though the moon is dead to itself, its orbit and rhythm within and around the world is bringing life and light as it doesn't generate anything, but simply learns to reflect, learns, it's the moon, as it by nature reflects, reflects the sun. And so whether you want to say be the moon, whether you want to say God's shining face, his smiling face, whatever it may be, the blessed life is found in beholding the smiling face of God in Jesus. 
and through the Spirit, now reflecting that smile to a world of dark and fallen faces that are restless to find that very smile. And so the whole point of the Christian faith is never you getting it all figured out for the sake of teaching other people. It's you finding the smile of God and then over time being so changed by that that other people begin to see the smile of God on you. Let's pray.